Good morning, everyone. Welcome and thank you for joining me here today. My name is Micah, one of the pastors at the Vine Church in Pasco, Washington. I'm excited this morning to be continuing our series in 1 John. So yesterday, I had an opportunity to go snowboarding with a good friend of mine. Uh, we went up to White Pass and it was spring conditions. It was sunny and it was warm and it got slushy by the end of the day, but it was a wonderful day to be out there. As we were starting the day early in the morning, we were getting ready at the cars and a friend said, I got to remember to put on sunscreen. And then as we started to walk away towards the lift to, to begin the day, uh, he had to hurry back to the car and get that sunscreen. And somehow in all that process, it didn't occur to me, maybe I need some sunscreen. And so I'm a little bit uh, tight feeling in my face, but it was a great day. Like, I feel so blessed to be in my physical self, able to experience the kind of joy that you experience out there. I'm the kind of person that just connects with God. I feel his presence when I'm out in nature. And then to be on a snowboard and get to experience like the adrenaline and the wind in your face to get to uh, crash and get back up and keep going. Like all the things that I experience in those moments are so life-giving for me. All of that experienced in this flesh, in this human body in which God has placed my soul. Today we're going to talk a little bit more about this idea, particularly as it, refer, as it pertains to Jesus and him coming in human form. So we're going to read today from 1 John chapter 4. We're going to read verses 1 through 6. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming into the world and is now in the world. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore seek, uh, therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them. We are from God and whoever knows God listens to us, but whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. All right, there's a number of subjects in here. John is continuing his conversation with the first century churches somewhere around the region of Ephesus, and he's writing to them as one of the last eyewitnesses of Jesus, his life, his ministry, his death and his resurrection. And he's writing to these churches because there was problems within the church. That is, there were people spinning off from the church with new truth claims about Jesus. And John is trying to call the church back into this clarity, this focus, understanding this reality of who Jesus is. The messages you heard from, from the beginning, he'll say over and over, the, the ministry of love, the idea of loving one another, these are the things that are central to 
um, to Jesus and his ministry and, and his followers in the church. So in this text, you hear him speaking, you know, dear children, speaking to the church members, and then speaking in contrast to the world or these spirits, these other forces that might exist. He mentions in here the Antichrist or the Antichrist's plural. Uh, Carrie spoke about that a few weeks ago, so I'm not going to go into detail on some of that. Uh, what I do want to talk about today is two primary things. First of all, he speaks of testing the spirits. Let's dig into that just a little bit more. And then he's going to come to this conclusion that the litmus test, the central thing to understanding whether a message or a person or a spirit is from God or otherwise, is this, do they claim Jesus came in the flesh? So we'll talk a little bit more about that as well. So test the spirits. What are the spirits? Uh, certainly, in many cases in the New Testament, when the idea of spirits is spoken of, it is referring to spirits that is um, supernatural beings. This would be forces of good or forces of evil. We see that uh, that idea throughout both the Old Testament and the New Testament. However, the word here, pneuma, um, that's the word used for spirits uh, in this case, and also the Holy Spirit also would be referred to as pneuma. In its most basic form would be translated as um, wind or breath. Um, or spirit is how it's most commonly translated. So we have here this conversation about the spirits, test the spirits. And, and in some respe respect, um, John is encouraging the followers, test to see if the spirits are from God or from not. But in another respect, he's speaking of also kind of the mentality um, or the ideas of the people or the age in which you live. In some cases, pneuma or is translated instead of wind, breath, or spirit as uh, a mentality, a mindset, or an inclination towards or against God. And so in addition, John is saying, I believe, to the followers, test the people, test the mentality, the thought processes of the people that are challenging your faith right now, and consider, is it from God or is it not? And so to the believers, he's saying, I want you to use discernment, right? I want you to use your faculties, your lifelong experiences with Jesus to be people of discernment. Now, discernment is hard, and this continues to be an incredibly relevant message in our lives today. What does it look like to discern, are these things from God or are they not? You know, naturally, we find discernment as we study God's word. We grow in our discernment, our ability to discern situations and people. Naturally, we grow in our discernment as we have conversation with trusted brothers and sisters in Christ. But also, we, we gain discernment by the Holy Spirit, who, who's promised to be our counselor and our guide. But this is not such an easy task. I don't know what prayer looks like in your life, uh, but in many of our lives, and for much of my life, prayer has primarily, look, prim primarily looked like me talking to God, coming to God with my list of concerns or requests, talking and then saying amen and it being done. Just in the last month, I had an opportunity to go on a spiritual retreat at um, a monastery in Abbey, um, south of Portland, and begin an academy of spiritual formation. And one of the practices that we were considering is centering prayer. 
And centering prayer um, dates back hundreds of years in the in the Christian tradition to the uh, desert fathers and mothers who went out into the desert to develop practices that would draw us deeper into the life and the presence of a triune God. And and so one of these practices called centering prayer has to do with our stilling has to do primarily with stilling ourselves and our minds, being still in the presence of God and allowing him to speak into us in that very still and quiet place. Now, um, just my personality and the way I operate, I am always seeking the next adventure or pleasurable thing in my life. And if I'm not engaged in it in that moment, I'm probably thinking towards and planning about what's coming next. And so the idea of sitting still and just stilling my mind and being in the presence of God, inviting the Spirit to breathe into me, uh, this is a challenging thing for me. And so for about a month with very specific challenges from this um, Academy of Spiritual Formations to be doing centering prayer every day of the week, I have, well, really have failed at it um, pretty miserably in this season Though I've, I've attempted to dig into centering prayer for five to 20 minutes a day, um, often I don't make it far. I, I get quickly distracted. But what has developed from this challenge and, and this concept is a different way of praying with some of the people closest to me. So recently, both uh, my wife and I, when we pray, um, our leadership teams or our staff teams here at the church, when we sit down to pray, uh, I've tried to incorporate some element of this idea of centering prayer in, into those times. And so often I'll, I'll, I'll explain a little bit about what we're going to do, and then I'll open a prayer very briefly. And God, Spirit, Jesus, thank you that you are with us. And then we'll sit in silence for at least three minutes. I set a timer on my watch to hold myself to that because I get antsy. Sometimes it feels more like 30 minutes than three minutes. But we sit and we listen. The reason I bring all this up is because discerning the Spirit's guidance, discerning God's will, discerning what's happening around us, well, it's e really easy to make instinctive, like gut, uh, just like quick responses and to quickly come to conclusions on what is right or what's happening in a moment. It's a very different thing in our day-to-day -day lives or in our prayer lives, in our relationship with our Heavenly Father, to be willing to sit in stillness, to be quiet and to listen. I believe this is a posture in which we will understand the will of God, be much more discerning, much more of the time, if we learn to listen in addition to praying, going to God with our requests, or assuming we already know what needs to happen in a situation. You see, John here in this text is encouraging the followers to be discerning. We are encouraged to be discerning. So, he tells them then, after he challenges them to be discerning, um, this is how you'll know what the Spirit is whether it's from God or otherwise. Do they acknowledge that Jesus came in the flesh? Now, it's very natural that he would come to this 
point in this letter that he's writing in the first century because the Gnostics, people that had broken away from the church, were claiming that they had this special secret knowledge about Jesus that only they possessed, and they were drawing people away from the church. And John is correcting the church, saying, do not go this route. You know who Jesus is, and you have known who he was from the beginning. Cling to, hold to that understanding that I, the eyewitness, had with Jesus. There is not a secret knowledge waiting for you out there. We have told you who Jesus is. And so he's, he's challenging them. And one of the primary beliefs that the Gnostics held was that Jesus wasn't actually human. He just looked that way. He was just a spirit that kind of took on the form of humanity. So John is challenging this idea for the first century readers and listeners, and he is saying to them, no, Jesus came in the flesh. And you will know if people are from God or if these spirits are from God or if these ideas are from God, if they acknowledge Jesus who came in the flesh. So today I want to talk incarnation, and this is an incredibly complex subject and an incredibly beautiful one, and I hope you find blessing in considering some of these ideas. Incarnation. Did God come in physical form? Was Jesus God, or was he just a human, and is he both human and uh, human and divine at the same time in his life? These are deep and profound questions, and these are the very questions early followers of Jesus were asking. And it wasn't just a conversation for the elites or the the, uh, the learned, the knowledgeable, the powerful. These are like the conversations happening around tables. Who was Jesus? Is he God as he claimed to be? And these questions, they drove the formation of the early church. And in these conversations, understand, whereas we listen to stories about Jesus who was 2,000 years ago, it's easy to lean into his divinity because we didn't walk with him. We didn't see him. We didn't experience him in human form. But understand that any debate or conversation about Jesus' identity for a first century early church person, particularly those that walked with him, uh, would be a little bit different than where we come from. You see, Jesus' humanity was just as real and as, and as important as the conversation of his divinity sitting around these tables. Any statement that a person was going to make about Jesus' divinity could not overshadow or, or trump their very real experience that Jesus was also human. He was also here in physical form. It was the experience of walking with Jesus and then receiving the Holy Spirit after he, his ascension that precipitated the theological debates amongst early believers. And I don't necessarily mean debates in a negative way. I mean, like, they are trying to hash out who was this man? And then the Holy Spirit comes in power at Pentecost and is guiding the church and leading as Jesus said the Spirit would. And they're saying, so how do we come to understand this God in terms of the Creator God, the Father God, Jesus, the Son who walked amongst us, and now the Holy Spirit that is driving, that is fueling, that has ignited this incredible movement that is the church in the first century? So um, throughout, throughout early church history, we'll read of the creeds being written, these statements of faith and belief foundational to those that would follow Jesus. This is what we have under, 
come to understand. Many of these statements uh, pertain to, the many of these statements in the creeds pertain to the character of Jesus, as well as more broadly identifying uh, God as a triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. I was given this commentary as we begin this series on 1 John it's kind of a commentary and kind of just questions and thoughts that dance around the themes found in First John, and it's really quite good. It's called We Really Do Need Each Other. Uh, it's by Reuben Welsh, and um, he asks some fascinating questions. For instance, on this subject, he says, is he really divine? Of course we say yes, but that is a fundamental question. You see, here we are, earthbound, sin-bound. We know something of our own human experience. Jesus comes into our world, and all the creeds that ever were um, are an effort to explain this question. What's going on here with this person in our world? Is he, Jesus, is he in fact God among us? Is he almost God? Is he nearly God? Is he like God, something like God? Is he the finest flower that ever grew in the human garden? Is he the greatest person who ever lived? Or is he God who comes to us? The creeds say that it is indeed God's life that comes to us. You see, this is uh, just his beautiful reflections and questions as he kind of dances around this idea of who is Jesus. Well, the creeds come to the conclusion that God's life has come to us. Further in his book, he reflects in these ways. In terms of fundamental, in terms of fundamentals, the first one is very clear. God's life is manifest to us in Jesus. It is really true that God's eternal life has come into our world at the level where it can be seen and touched and heard and felt and experienced and known. Is that really true? Is it true that the eternal life of God has entered our human situation fully, totally, utterly? Right? These are profound questions. And the questions remain for us today. Who is Jesus? Is he God as he walked in this world? You see, there's incredible theological ramifications of understanding God as both divine and as human. Now, I was challenged recently to consider the reality that in our Western Protestant faith, and really beyond just Western Protestantism, but in much of the Christian world, we lean heavily into the divinity of Jesus, and rightfully so, because he is divine. But that we come, we become quite uncomfortable with conversations about his humanity also, as described in Scripture. N.T. Wright says it in this way, we always assume we know what God is like, and then we go about trying to fit Jesus into this paradigm. All right, we start with some preconceived idea of who God is, and then we try to fit Jesus into that mold. But John 1.18, this is John's gospel, he says, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. John claims this, Jesus, walking in human flesh, has made God known. So instead of assuming that we know all about God, 
We are invited into this shocking and powerful narrative, this story about a human being named Jesus who was both loved and hated in this world, who was ultimately crucified and then rose from the dead and appeared to his followers again in human flesh in this man, Jesus. We come to know God. John, here the author that we're reading in 1 John, is saying, I walked with this man. I knew him, this Jesus, and I have come to know, to believe that he is the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior. Philippians 2 describes Jesus' character in this way. Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Philippians here, um, Paul describes for us, Jesus was in very nature God. He and God were the same. God, He was God. And in the West, we're pretty good at this. We're pretty good with this idea of Jesus as divine. Our artwork shows him glowing. Uh, when we think of uh, the way he lived on this earth, it's quite easy to just draw conclusions based upon the preconceived idea that, well, it's because he's God. For instance, when we say Jesus didn't sin, you'd say, how in the world did Jesus not sin? If I were to ask you that question, it's very likely you'd say because he was God. But notice how in the way we respond to that question, we take the humanity out of it and we lean so fully into the divinity that we kind of remove him from humanity. And so when it comes to being a disciple of Jesus, with the call to follow in the footsteps of my rabbi, to walk in the ways that Jesus walked, it's like we, we kind of just let ourselves off the hook. Yeah, but he was God, so I can't do those things. But that's not the call of scripture, nor is it the way we're supposed to follow him. He was also human. Now, I get it. The math doesn't work up, work out. Um, like, can he be 100% God and 100% human? This is a very complex subject. I'm not great at math, so maybe I'm not the one to answer it fully for you. Uh, it, it, what it says for sure is this. God is greater than our understandings. He is greater the sum of what we can come up with and our theology. But that is the claim of Scripture, because right here in Philippians, uh, Paul is claiming he was in very nature God, but he didn't want to take advantage of this fact that he was God. So he made himself nothing. This idea, he made himself nothing. The word here is kenosis, which um, has to do with being emptied or to be poured out, to become hollow. This is the idea. And it says Jesus made some uh, pre-incarnate decision to empty himself out. And, and I can't define, we can, man, we could have hours of conversation on this, and I think it's fascinating. For now, I just want to help us ask a few questions of what might be going on here. Right? What does it mean that Jesus poured out his divinity or released some of that? That he made some decision to maybe limit his knowledge, maybe to limit his power. Right? When we see Jesus healing, we quite often think, well, it's because he's God that he can heal people. 
But what if Jesus' power was actually the same power that raised him from the dead? God, the Holy Spirit at work in this world, the same power by which disciples and apostles were performing miracles and casting out demons? What if Jesus had poured himself out and now in his human flesh was truly praying to God in a garden, God, take this from me. Is there another way? Now, these are big questions, and some of these are uncomfortable, and and they can be rattling. I'm not telling you you have to believe anything particular about the answers to those. What I'm saying is Scripture describes God, both or Jesus, in both divine and human terms. And John, in 1 John chapter 4, where we are today, is challenging readers and listeners to remember this fundamental truth. Jesus came in flesh. And the fact that he lived on this earth as a human is quite remarkable. It's startling and it's wonderful and it ought to challenge us and we ought to grapple with the realities and the ideas that yes, he is divine and yes, he walked as a human on this earth. Again, Welsh in his um, commentary says this, I think we believe in the humanity of Christ, but not really. I think you think you believe in the humanity of Jesus, but I don't think you really do. And if we would talk about it a while, you'd get nervous. I could write a long time about the divinity of Christ, and you would nod your head and slowly go to sleep about it. But when we begin to think about the the real humanity of Jesus, we get nervous. We're afraid of it. This is his idea here. Jesus came in the flesh, and it's challenging to grapple with, but I think it's a good thing to grapple with. It's a good thing to consider. And John draws us back to this foundational idea. Jesus came as a human, and he walked on earth. So what are some of the implications of this? I'd like to close out with just a few implications and ideas that are really significant. The idea of God coming and walking amongst humanity. One of the names for Jesus is Emmanuel. It means God with us. The name of Jesus is God with us, Emmanuel. In John chapter 1, uh, we read this, this text that says, God came and dwelt among us. The, the Greek word really more literally means he tabernacled among us. The tabernacle for the Israelite people as they traveled through the deserts towards the promised land. The tabernacle is where God would meet with humanity. And it uses this idea as John describes Jesus coming. He came and he pitched a tent. He came and he lived here amongst us. He dwelt among us. He tabernacled here. That is, in Jesus, the presence of God was meeting with humanity. The fact that Jesus came and walked and lived in human form uh, is a deeper understanding of God identifying with humanity. I was talking with Mark Taylor this week, and, and he says, yeah, Jesus came and he came all the way down. He didn't come and just hover above humanity. He came all the way down, right? And and it, it, John describes for us this idea that he came and he lived the life of a servant. Not only did he come in human flesh, but he wasn't born into an upper middle class or upper class family with all sorts of privilege. He was invited, or he was born into a lower class household. 
in a remote and kind of despised region of Israel. He lived as a refugee early in his life as his family had to flee to Egypt. Jesus was born into humble circumstances and throughout his life continued to demonstrate the kingdom of God by from his humble circumstances choosing a posture of sacrifice and of service for other people. This is an example that we ought to follow. You know, from the beginning, again, as we talk about implications of Jesus coming in flesh, from the beginning, it was God's intent to work with and through humanity to care for and to heal this world. And so God chose a man named Abraham and he made a covenant with him. When all seemed lost, God chooses Abraham and he says, I'm going to make you into a great nation and I'm going to bless this nation, Israel, so that you can be a blessing in all the world. Well, in time, all seemed lost again. Israel had time and time again abandoned their side of covenant, abandoned God, and turned to other directions. In time, war came, and Israel was no longer a sovereign nation. And at this point, they're crying out to God, what about all those promises? And God's like, I have not been unfaithful to you. You've been unfaithful to me. So what does God do? He doesn't punish them. Instead, he comes in the form of a human. He comes in flesh. Jesus comes to earth and fulfills both ends of covenant. That through Israel, all of the world would be blessed. God comes in his abounding love and his faithfulness, and he fulfills this covenant, bringing hope not just to Israel, but to all of humanity. This is the good news. Jesus came in human form, and there is hope because of that. And in time, Jesus' human body died on a cross. He was crucified. But in resurrection, even death itself was defeated. And we are invited into this good news, this hope. This is why 2,000 years later, the church comes together and sings and celebrates and reads scripture. It's It's the reason why we engage differently in this world than other people around us. It's why we choose the way of love over the way of hate or violence. Because God, who is gracious and merciful, chose in our weakest and most hopeless moment to come in human flesh and to suffer on our behalf. He came to walk with us. This is hope. This is the hope that's found in Jesus. It's a sacrificial one. It's it's a hope driven by love. It's a hope greater than our personal or our world circumstances. God has brought hope into this world, and yes, it is a hope even greater than death. And so, we believe this. God loves the world. He loves humanity, you and me. And he was willing to demonstrate that love with the ultimate sacrifice, that is to come and to live in human form and to die for the sake of humanity. This is love. Let's pray about that. God, we thank you for this day and this opportunity. We thank you for a text here in 1 John as he reminds us Jesus came and walked in the flesh. So God, as as we walk in flesh, as we snowboard or as we go to work or as we sit and we worship, as we read scripture and as we think of you, God, in all aspects of our life, 
May we live more like Jesus, who walked in this world in the flesh. God, may we be more like him. Demonstrate his love, your love. And Spirit, as we struggle to understand the idea of Jesus as divine and human, as we struggle to walk in his ways, Spirit, we invite you to be our counselor and our guide. Teach us to live more like Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Friends, thank you so much for joining me here today. Can't wait to see you again and have a blessed week. Bye-bye.